This is your EE Times Weekly Briefing. I'm Dan Vaughn, Director of Publishing for the Aspen Corps Global Service, filling in this week for David Finch. Today is Friday, March 22nd. This week's top stories include NVIDIA's annual GPU technology conference, the U.S. Exascale supercomputer deal, and the latest jury verdict on the Qualcomm versus Apple patent infringement case. Later in the show, Junko Yoshida, global co-editor of Aspen Core Media, is back in the U.S. discussing the Boeing 737 MAX crashes. And Rick Merritt will give us a preview of Aspen Core's upcoming special project on artificial intelligence, scheduled to launch on March 25th. First, NVIDIA. Rick Merritt, who was at NVIDIA's annual event in San Jose this week, reports that a big surprise was no mention of a 7-nanometer GPU by NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang during his three-hour-long keynote. But as Rick reports, NVIDIA didn't have to pre-announce the company's high-end roadmap, considering the company's commanding lead in graphics computing and AI. Some 8,000 attendees who showed up at the event were a testament to that. The U.S. Department of Energy awarded Intel and Cray a contract for more than $500 million to build the first of three exascale class supercomputers. With a $1.8 billion budget, the U.S. government is expected to announce that the team of IBM and NVIDIA will build the two other systems using their future power processors and GPUs, Rick reports. A jury in U.S. District Court in San Diego found that certain models of Apple's iPhone, including iPhone X, infringe on patents held by Qualcomm. The jury awarded Qualcomm $31 million for damages. The $31 million in damages may seem like an insignificant sum for Apple, but the finding of patent infringement can be damaging to Apple because it may force Apple to license the technology involved from Qualcomm going forward, according to Dylan McGrath. Apple is likely to appeal the decision. Now on to Boeing 737 MAX. EE Times newly appointed editor-in-chief Brian Santo chats with Junko Yoshida, asking her to break down the two crashes that took place in the span of five months. I'm Brian Santo, Editor-in-Chief of EE Times. We're talking with Junko Yoshida, Global Co-Editor-in-Chief for Aspen Core Media, about a story she wrote about Boeing, two crashes of its newest passenger jets, and why the auto industry should pay attention to whatever lessons Boeing learns from its investigations into what went wrong. Before we get into what this means for autonomous vehicles, let's quickly review your reporting on what happened with Boeing's planes from a technology perspective. Boeing and Airbus were rushing to develop new energy-efficient engines. Boeing decided to retrofit its new engine on its best-selling 737 jet. That had consequences. Explain what happened. Yes, you're right. Boeing's decision to retrofit 737 had a cascade of impacts on issues that eventually led to the tragedy of the 737 MAX crashes. Boeing was in a rush to launch a new model with more fuel-efficient engines. On the business front, the company's mandate was to effectively compete against Airbus without too much delay. Reusing the best-selling model for that seems like a smart idea at that time. But on the engineering front, especially in embedded safety systems, it's never a good idea to keep adding modifications that layer on top of another. It's because new modifications could incur unintended consequences 
in the original system design. And initial indications from the two down jets was that they both had trouble with a similar problem. Right. Keeping the nose up, right? Right, right. Here's what happened. Boeing engineers had to find a way to fit larger engines into the classic 737's narrow body. The team ended up placing new engines further forward on the wing, which resulted in altering the aircraft's so-called lift characteristics. Ah, okay. Because this tended to push the aircraft's nose upward, it threatened a stall in some circumstances. To compensate for that, Boeing engineers added new software called MCAS, short for Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. In other words, these new lines of code were added to the existing flight control system to counter the destabilizing pitch forces from the new engines. Right. So that's the technology element of the issue. And the technology is very specific to the aviation industry. But what you're saying, Junko, is that that was just a manifestation of more fundamental problems. Problems you're suggesting the auto industry would do well to avoid, right? Right. So what are those? Lax design practices, poor regulatory oversight, what? You've heard of safety by design, right, Brian? Mm -hmm. It isn't just a nice-to-have slogan, you know. (laughs) Seriously, as any embedded system safety experts can tell you, system safety can't be an afterthought. This principle applies to both automotive and aviation. As for crashes of Boeing 737 MAX, I blame both Boeing and the FAA. Okay. First, I think Boeing's newly added software was an afterthought. That's a sign of lax design practice, in my opinion. Second, the FAA's approval process for new aircrafts needs to be scrutinized. Was 737 MAX entirely a new model? Or should it be treated just as a modified 737? That's a good question. Obviously, Boeing downplayed changes made in the new aircraft so that FAA can fast-track the approval process. Meanwhile, everyone, I mean everyone, Boeing and airlines included, could avoid lengthy and costly retraining programs for pilots using simulations. But seriously, Brian, I must ask, where was FAA's independence? Some recent media reports suggest that FAA approval process in recent years has relied heavily on Boeing and other manufacturers to self-police. If true, what is the point of having FAA in the first place? There's already a trend of younger people forgoing ownership of cars in favor of ride-sharing. If that trend continues, we'll end up with companies operating fleets of cars and offering travel as a service, which is almost exactly what airlines do now with their fleets of planes. So my question to you, Junko, is do you think that's a good analogy? And if so, what does that mean for the automotive industry and their responsibilities to ensure safety? Will auto manufacturers bear more responsibility for their products than they do now? You raise a very interesting question here. Yes, once the business of car OEMs morphs into ride-sharing services, car makers will effectively become fleet operators 
and I would imagine they will be forced to work in a very different regulatory environment. But here's the thing. I don't think car makers will change their AMOs so easily. Brian, remember, the auto industry fought tooth and nail against the mandate for the use of seatbelts. It took State Farm Insurance Company to bring the NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, to court, and State Farm won in 1983. But car makers dragged their heels, and it took until 1989 for the seatbelt use to get mandated in 34 states, but not in all of the states in America. So call me a cynic. I'm not too optimistic if automakers are willing to bear more responsibility for safety of their products. Thanks, Junka. I'm Brian Santo for EE Times and EE Times On Air. Meanwhile, Junko turns a microphone to Rick to provide a preview on our upcoming special project on artificial intelligence. Rick, you posted this week a story entitled, Cayman Aims to Deliver AI to FedEx. This is about FedEx's much-publicized delivery robot project. And you actually talked to Dean Cayman. This is Dean Cayman of Segway fame, right? That is very cool. So what did Cayman have to say about AI? Hey, Junko. Yeah, it was fun talking to Dean Kamen because he's such a character and a veteran. And it was clear that deep learning is completely new to him and his team. So that was kind of an interesting reality check in itself and that they're trying to hire people with expertise in this area. And the technology is so fast moving that they're claiming the documentation is still really poor and it's hard to just get good information about products and how they work. They wouldn't say too much about the project because it is a big deal for them. But the hints I read between the lines, I'm guessing here, is that it's a big challenge for them to create their own custom neural networking models around the already complicated task of sensor fusion with cameras and LIDAR and and radar that they're using on their robot. All the stuff that you're familiar with covering from the automotive industry that they're trying to do in the little delivery robot. So here is AI potentially enabling a whole new class of products, the autonomous delivery robot, And it's still not really clear if that's a product that will get off the ground or not for all the same kinds of challenges that you're seeing in automotive today. Now, my understanding is the Cayman story is only a part of the big AI special project, which you're preparing to launch next week. You told me, Rick, you have prepared seven stories for this big project. Really? Tell us what this AI special project entails. So, yeah, Junko, this area that we call AI or deep learning is really hard to get a handle on. It's so big and fast moving. But what I was trying to do in this package was, first of all, do a couple of case studies like the Cayman story and a separate story uh, with an engineering manager from HPE to get some real world sense of what's going on here. And just in those two stories, what's really clear is this stuff is really hard and it's real. Beyond that, I tried to just get a sense of where we're at in the software and the hardware landscape. And a couple of things. It's clear that most of these chips still in the pipeline haven't really been described or certainly not benchmarked yet. So we've still got to see a lot of the first generation hardware is still yet to come. 
And that's in part because the software is still moving so quickly underneath and the kinds of neural network models and how they're created and how they're used uh, is still evolving faster than the hardware can really keep up. So there was a lot to say about all that. And besides, I just thought it was kind of fun to have David Cantor who's a microprocessor analyst we've known for a long time, who's now got involved in the MLPerf benchmarking effort that Google and Baidu got started, uh, to have him just, you know, tell his first person experiences as an engineer getting involved right in the midst of that. I think he is another one of these people who is just like, wow, this is fast moving. We don't know where it's going, but you just got to jump in and, and do something. So I think that's kind of an interesting personal story for our readers. Rick, you've been covering this AI space for a while now. I play a peripheral role on the AI coverage because my beat includes autonomous driving. Personally, I'm a little frustrated with the AI because people often bring up AI in their tech marketing talk as if AI is going to solve the world's problem. What's your take on AI challenges? not just in the context of the chip industry, but also the society at large, what still needs to be solved? So, Junko, I agree. AI is overhyped by people who don't fully understand what it is. <laughs> Even the term AI is not really accurate. We're talking about what most people call deep learning here, and AI is something far out in the future. So it's an overhyped area, and I too have my skepticism because a lot of people are saying a lot of things that aren't well-grounded in reality. But what is clear is that there is at the core here something very important which is going on, which is that there's a new computing technique uh, which has been discovered, which is very successful. It's basically a pattern matching technique. And how often do you come up with a new way of computing, right? <laughs> like in our careers, this is probably it. Yes. So it's not for everything. It's a statistical method. So where you just need to know an answer, yes, no, one or zero, Traditional methods are better, but this is a darn good brand new statistical technique, which is having amazing results in areas that we well know, like computer vision and smart speakers for natural language processing and automated translation and on and on. People are still trying to find out what the application space is going to be like, and they don't know yet. Obviously, we can't explain why we get these good results yet, and that's kind of a frustration, but people say, hey, we got the good results. We'll worry about the explanation for it later. So that's one of the limits. Another limit is to really do this work, you need a large as possible data set as you can find. You know, Google and Baidu and, and Facebook and Amazon, they have these large data sets, but a lot of people don't. So that's a limit. You need data science expertise to create these kinds of models, and it's a, it's a fairly limited pool of people who really understand how this technology works and the underlying technology, how the models are built, what kind of models will be optimal for what kind of areas is still evolving. So there's a lot here to write about. There's a lot that engineers will be doing in the next decade. We'll have plenty to write about through our retirement. And there are the social problems too with something which is statistical method. Where is good enough acceptable and where is good enough just not acceptable? So much more to find out here and it'll give us stuff to write about for years. This has been your weekly briefing from EE Times and the Aspen Core Global Service. I'm Dan Vaughn. Thank you for listening.